Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. We are ripping through the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to get to the, the golden rule. Teacher says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, uh, Jesus is not a kindergarten teacher. And uh, elementary school morality um, isn't really going to cut through uh, what Jesus is doing when he says that God cares how you treat other people. Here's the problem with the golden rule as, well, I just live my life by the golden rule. The reason that you do what you do. In Matthew 5, we saw that righteousness is not so much what you're doing. It has to do with what you do, but it's, it's the, the heart. It's not the hands. It's the heart that produces what's in the hands. In Matthew 6, the topic was doing what you do to bring glory to God instead of to yourself and being rewarded, the eternal treasury that we're addressing by our actions. Don't try to glorify yourself here on earth because you're canceling the the glory that God would give you an eternal treasure in heaven. Bring glory and honor to God in what you do, why you do what you do. And that's going to be true with that famous saying in the New America Standard, verse 12 of Matthew 7, and everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. The reason why the golden rule is important is not so that you'll get what you'd like to have happen to you. That's not why you do it. And that's a misunderstanding that we have because of elementary school morality. The reason that you do it is because of your father in heaven. That's always going to be the case. And the only, uh, the only wisdom is always the fear of the Lord, that we would do what we do in God's presence for his pleasure. So that's what we're doing today. We're learning about the various um, uh, pieces of Jesus' message, sort of in application of the seeking after treasure in heaven, where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. I hope everybody's uh, been edified by the challenge Jesus gives to the question of your subsistence. The logistics, I've got to feed my family, I've got to pay the mortgage, I've got to cover the insurance. That concern that we're just working day by day to pay the bills. That's what Jesus addresses when he talks about serving God and wealth. It doesn't sound like wealth. It doesn't sound like that. I'm preaching Matthew 6 now. But when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, he's talking about the basic necessities, what you'll wear, what you'll put on, you know, the, the, um, what you'll eat. And that rationale is that God is. The reason we slide into a functional atheism is that we're not thinking in terms of God's revelation and it's not in front of us as it should be. We're not meditating on it day and night. But the more attention we'll give to God's word, the more he will be real to us and we will therefore be dealing with things as they are. It isn't that God's reality, the reality of God fades when we disregard him, it's that we get into a delusion driven by all there is is all I can see. And we stop remembering who he is and what he expects. It becomes, un, or I should say, irrelevant to us the more we're in our own head and our own circumstance. And really, that's our own delusion. We are 
more and more pretending that he's not there and his opinion doesn't matter. And this is the, the inevitable consequence of living in a fallen fleshly state in a fallen world driven by Satan and his demons in this, this wicked cosmic system of deception with an invisible God with whom we must deal. The, more, uh, the longer I ignore his word, the more he will fade from my consciousness and I will be uh, not considering him in my choices. And the more I meditate on his word, conversely, the more I'll refer, re, um, reflect on that word in prayer, the more that relationship will take on its reality. So applying this idea of, of doing what you do for the eternal reward, your father who's in secret rewards what's done in secret, that you let go of living for making a living and basic subsistence, and you do those things for God. You do those things in the context of I'm interested in making disciples who will come and rule in the coming kingdom. We asked the question last time, how do we relate to the kingdom? If we're going to seek the kingdom, how do we do that? Well, it isn't by building it. It isn't by establishing moral civil structures. That's not the mission Jesus gave us anywhere in the scriptures. It isn't even by feeding the poor. Of course you can feed the poor, but there's a higher priority. Judas learned this. We could have given that, that money. We could have sold that, that precious ointment that was used to wash Jesus' feet. And we could, we could give that to the poor. And Jesus said, she's doing the right thing. She's anointed my body for burial. The poor are always with you, but you don't always have me with you. There's a higher priority is the principle than feeding the poor. And we're going to eradicate poverty and famine and suffering. We're not. But those aren't even the goal. The goal isn't to, to make everybody feel better. If you're, if you're hopelessly trapped in sin, living your life for yourself and following Satan's uh, broad agenda that everyone's on, then you shouldn't be comfortable. The goal would be for you to become uncomfortable. And you should ask the question, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? And what's my life for? And what are we here for? So what we're saying is that in... Considering God and his claim on our lives in Matthew 6, we learn not to worry, but to be on mission. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care, enough, care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The way you'll manage the life God has you living is not by solving all the problems. It's by trusting in God, being about his work, and as the problems arise, you put that on him and you take it a day at a time. And uh, those of you who are campaigners with me know well that that is the way, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily easier as we go. It means that this is how we live. This is, it, well, it is easier to know I've got a mission. I'm focusing on it. I, my conscience is clean because I'm on mission. All right. Moving to, to, to Matthew chapter 7, the initial topic he has is making judgments on other people. It's an interesting topic. We went from uh, what people think of you and how you give your giving and fast and pray and um, getting people's opinion and approval to what you think of the choices of others, to you judging others. It's an interesting inversion. When you get to Matthew 7, did you ever notice that, that that's, that's the next thing? Because now you have, it's almost like if you internalize verse 33 of Matthew 6, that we're going to um, that we're going to seek first the kingdom and we're going to get our priorities straight. Well, then it's really easy to look around at others and say, well, they don't. They don't have that. They haven't learned that yet, right? We, a lot of times, stop looking at ourselves in judgment and we look to judge the other person, especially when we have a clue about what's going on. It's easy to see people around us that won't seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It's easy to see people that are not on mission 
in Christianity, in the church. The whole Bible's written to sanctify us. I mean, it's not completed action. It's, it's an ongoing process. And we have to learn to, to think in terms of God's priorities. You see people that don't. Well, it's easy to get uh, judgmental. And that's a sophomoric state. Does everybody know what sophomore means? It doesn't mean 10th grade. What's that? It doesn't even mean 14th grade either. Uh, yeah, it's so- sophomore is sophos and moron. It's uh, wise and fool together. Yeah, it's a Greek word for uh, sophos is wisdom and, uh, and moron is fool. And so you put the two opposites together. It's a magnet. It's the two poles jammed together and it's a contradiction. That, you know, that's why the teenagers are called sophomores. But um, because they, they have an idea of what they should do and then you see what they do and you're like, what are you thinking? And they tell you and you're like, no. And so, but they had, they, they were trying to, anyway, the point, just joking around with you teenagers, but the point is that a sophomore knows the right thing and then sees the other person not doing the right thing and then gets really judgmental. And, um, and it's just easy for our sin nature to disregard us, ourselves. And we feel after the flesh, like looking at someone else and judging their situation. And the ultimate principle on judging as Christians, you have to make judgments. The Bible's really clear. You have to temper what he says with everything else he says. You have to understand it in its context. The Bible says you have to make judgments. It says you have to make judgments ahead of time, meaning prejudice, judge before. You have to judge any situation before based on the principle that you learn. Like, let me give you an example of prejudice. We should be prejudiced against sin. Before I see someone commit a sin, the concept of the sin, I should be opposed to it. So when someone becomes guilty of that sin, I should be opposed to that thing. That's very clear. That's what the scriptures say. And we should start with ourselves. I should be prejudiced, judging beforehand against my own sin. Understand what I'm saying. My own tendencies, my own weaknesses in my sinful nature, I should be opposed to those things and I should know beforehand. Every instance of adultery or fornication, we should, before we ever see anyone guilty of it, just the concept itself, we should say, this is why Jesus had to go to the cross. This is destructive every time it's tried. This is something that no one should ever do. This is something completely rejected, completely rejected by all of God's people in any instance that we find it. Yeah, but what about? No, there's no, yeah, but what about fornication, adultery? It's very clear cut. All right, that's the judgment. So then, then once you have established the principle, you have to be judicious in how you apply it and recognize that you will be under judgment yourself as well. And that's what Jesus is going to do. So let's get into it. It says in Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And people stop reading. And, you know, well, we're done making judgments from then on, but that's not how it works because then he tells you how to judge. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by what standard of measure, it will be, uh, by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not the, you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Did everybody catch that, that you're supposed to actually help your brother with the speck in his eye? That's a judgment. He's saying you're, you're noticing the speck. And it isn't just a judgment. It's a removal. Hey, you got a speck in your eye. That's judgment. But then let's get that speck out of there. It's the, the whole thing. Let's, let's help you with this. Right? A lot of what Jesus does through here is why are you doing what you're doing? If you're a speck inspector, if you like to go looking for specks, 
you're doing it for the wrong reason. And that's the problem. You're not trying to encourage the person. You're not trying to edify the person. Your goal is to make yourself feel better about you. And that's the self-righteous tendency in your sin nature. Everybody's got a self-righteous streak. Everybody's struggling with this. And everybody knows what it's like to be treated by a self-righteous person with, uh, oh, I'm just here to help you. And this is the hard thing. If the self-righteous person's right about what I'm doing wrong, do I want them to say something? No, in, the fle- in, in my feelings, I don't, I don't want to hear from them to hell with them. That's how I feel. It's church. We could say hell in church. Uh, I don't want anything to do with somebody that, um, that wants to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And that's how I feel. If they're telling me you're running off a cliff, you know, that's, that's a cliff there and you're going to fall off. Do I want them to tell me that so I don't fall off the cliff? Yes. Even if a self-righteous person says the right thing, I shouldn't disregard it regardless of their motive. I'm saying as a recipient, but we all know what it's like to be judged, to have someone set himself up as our judge and therefore to be judgmental. And Jesus is teaching against this tendency. Even when he says, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. So in verse one, do not judge. May crinita, may crinita, do not judge so that you not be judged. This is a proverbial statement. Do not judge so that you not be judged. A proverbial statement, which means that if you want to give, you will have to receive. It's the ultimate rule in boxing. If you want to give, then you have to be willing to receive. If you can reach them with your right cross, they can reach you with their right cross. It's just how it is. You better be sure you hit because if your right cross misses, theirs is going to not miss. You're off balance and your face is exposed. And so that's the idea. If you enter the fray, understand you're going to get just as much back toward you. It's a proverbial statement. It's a statement of wisdom. And it certainly addresses the person that's looking to go help judge everybody. The self-righteous judge. Boy, let's beat up on those people for the rest of the time today. Will y'all go along with me if I gripe about self-righteous people that want to harp on your sins? Of course we want to hear that feels good. That's red meat to, to, to red dogs or whatever. We want to hear how we shouldn't be judgmental people. And we shouldn't be. And, and Paul teaches this in Romans that you don't, who are you to judge your brother? You set yourself up as the judge of your brother. That's taking God's place. The, the servant stands or falls before his master and will stand before God. This is very clear in the scriptures that we have a self-righteous, sinful tendency, and we like to judge people by our self-righteous standards and make ourselves feel better. And that, that has to be completely rejected. It's just your flesh. It is often masquerading in church as holiness, And fundamentalist Bible-believing people will often be accused of being this way because, for example, we categorically reject fornication in all of its its expressions. Listen, if you're guilty of fornication, you need to confess that. If you're practicing fornication now, you need to stop that. It's very explicitly clear it's a curse and a destruction to you, and we're not supposed to associate with you as brothers and sisters in Christ if you're engaged in fornication. Check it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm not even supposed to have a meal with such a person a believer, a brother who is walking after that, that sinful category. It's such a distraction, such a destruction of your spiritual life. That is a judgment that I would have to make, but I'm not looking to be judgmental and set myself up and replace Jesus in your life to be a judgmental person. And this is the balance you have to strike. I don't want to go and render judgments, but sometimes I have to. 
Sometimes I'm required to. The Apostle Paul of the Lord Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 5, if you don't make a judgment about this man that's caught in adultery with his father's wife, then you are arrogant and you should have mourned instead. You are in trouble with God for not making this judgment. We have to be very clear about this. This is a proverbial statement and it's a clear, true to life thing. It really is how it works. If you don't want someone to throw at you, don't throw at them. It's the snowball principle. The snowball principle, if you go make a snowball and throw it in my face, you just have to understand that now we're having a snowball fight. It's not a snowball th- one, one shot. By the same standard you measure, it's gonna, I'm going to measure it to you. Now, in our family, we like to escalate. You throw one, I throw two. You throw two, I make rocks and snowballs. And, and uh, we, we like to escalate um, uh, because we don't consider the, the outcome of that escalation. But he says as a proverbial statement, don't judge so that you not be judged. And we need to obey that in the sense, obviously, that we're not trying to become the judge of one another. We're not setting ourselves up as the authority to go around judging everyone. But believers, don't kill your conscience when God tells you this is how it's supposed to be. Don't then say, well, I mean, it's how it's supposed to be for me, but not for someone else. It's true. It's God's word. It's what you're responsible for. You're just not the judge. But you have to make judgments. I hope you understand what I'm saying. For in which judgment you judge, you will be judged. Okay. If I sign up to play football, then I'm going to be judged by the rules of football. If I come to you and say, I think this is a problem, then I am willing to be assessed by the same criterion. And that's what you have to be willing to do as maturing believers who go and help. There's a special blessing, Paul tells us, for those who will recover a a believer that's trapped in sin, that you want to restore such a one with a spirit of fear and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And you have to make a judgment to do that. But I'm entering into this saying there's a path that we're supposed to walk on and we need to walk on this path. And there are times I get off the path too, but that doesn't change the fact that we need to walk on this path. And so it's, it's really important. The scriptures in the New Testament are full of instruction of believers helping other believers back, back onto the path. We're supposed to, in 1 Thessalonians 5, in love, we're supposed to correct the person that's out of line. You're supposed to correct the person that's out of line. Nutheteo. Bring a correction. Well, how do I bring a correction? You have to make a judgment. So, so you cannot take proverbial statements. I'm just saying you can't take proverbial statements and make them something that they're not saying. Make them some sort of rule that we don't ever make a judgment. And the judgment you judge, you will be judged. By which measure you measure, it will be measured to you. These are all proverbial. These are all sort of obvious. Okay. If I issue, I'm a Hebrew professor, right? If I issue a Hebrew exam, I better have already taken that exam and passed it. I better already know, I'm going to test you, so you're going to have to, I better know and be able to, to do that same level of thing. If I'm going to come to you and say, there's a problem, there's a moral problem that I'm observing, they better be able to say, well, how are you doing with this moral problem? And that's, that's the nature of because, and, and he's going to that because he's talking about specks and planks, specks and beams. And I, everybody that is encountering each other about morality is struggling morally. Everyone, strugg- everyone is struggling morally. Pastor Dave, you said, I'm struggling. Yes, you are. There is a problem of sin tugging on you all the time. And a lot of times you don't know it. And sometimes it's, a, it's, a, it's an old friend that you're happy to welcome in. Hi, old friend. Hi, gossip. I haven't spoken with you in a little while. Ooh, that was tasty. Let me share that. And we don't even know. Oh, I, I, I don't gossip. See, the, the, 
the moral problems are, are, are all evidence that we haven't been resurrected. And we're all struggling. And some of you are struggling with more overt things and some are more mental attitude things. And, and that's a problem for all of us. Y'all, you're, you're in a safe place. You know how safe it is to be in Preston City Bible Church? We believe in Jesus. Jesus is our great shepherd and guardian of the flock. He's the overseer. Jesus is our savior. He's our Lord. He has died for all of our sins. And without him, we are all hopelessly consigned to the lake of fire for our our own wickedness and the inherited wickedness of our father, Adam. And so this is a safe place. Everybody here is is a wretched sinner saved by grace. Everybody here is responsible to Jesus to be forgiving, for fellowship with him, because if we don't forgive, then he won't forgive us. And that's for fellowship with him. We, we, nobody here is allowed to be a self-righteous, arrogant fool. Now we will be at times, but guess what? When you're a self-righteous, arrogant fool, I'm supposed to forgive you in advance. I'm supposed to love cover a multitude of sins. I'm supposed to not count a wrong suffered. You're supposed to be, this is a safe place where people get it wrong and they know it at times they get it wrong and they have the maturity they have the self-awareness to know that i'm not resurrected yet either and i get it wrong sometimes and we can fail and forgive and we can succeed and not be arrogant about our success and this should be a place where people can tell you what they think where you can hear from them what their concerns are and where you can say i understand that concern it should be safe it's funny, uh, it's, it's a place where I just, I just made everybody feel vulnerable and yeah, we should be safe here. Here comes some fool, some Christian fool is gonna, gonna use that vulnerability to try to promote themselves. Understand when someone does that, you have to cling to your savior. It's safe because Jesus is our savior. It's safe because we're being about his work. This, this household of households, this little church family is committed to Christ and he has an opinion about how I treat you and how you treat one another. And when you start asking that question of personal relationship, you can start saying, okay, I can enter the fray. I can enter the discussion and be of service to him regarding the problem of personal sin in my life and the life of others. And which judge me, judge, it'll be judged by which measure you measure will be measured to you. And now the illustration. Now, why do you see the car foss? The car foss is a speck. The one in the ophthalmos, in the eye of the brother, of your Adelphos, of your brother. This is a fun vocabulary list um, passage. I don't know Carphos and Dachos, but I know Blepo and Ophthalmos and Adelphos. Okay, why do you see the speck? Why do you spot Blepo? Why do you uh, identify, detect, or see the speck? And it almost, Blepo could mean study intently. Why are you seeing the speck in your brother's eye. Well, is it wrong if you see somebody with a speck in his eye to help? No, they need help. All right. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but the beam in your own eye you do not notice? Now, is it wrong if somebody needs help to help them? See, I, I've seen this in a legalistic frame before where you don't judge. You don't make a judgment. Legalistically, like that's the new rule. So if you see someone making a judgment, you judge them for making a judgment. But we don't call that a judgment because they were judging and we don't make a judgment on judging. And it's crazy. You have to think. The thing is, God gave you a brain and he wants you to use it. The point is not that you're helping the guy with the speck. It's that you've got a log sticking out of your face. The word beam 
the word beam means like a, like a, like a, a, a big piece of wood, a big four by four, something that would be structural. And it's an absurd illustration. How can you see anything with the log sticking out of your eye? Right? And so it's the absurdity. This is the absurdity of the self-righteous person that props himself up by judging the other person. Hey, you, you, are, they, uh, you tithe cumin and, and your herbs, but you're denying uh, honoring your father and mother. Right? So the idea that I'm the righteous one and I'm here to square away you, the messed up one, it's an easy thing to slide into. You don't even think of it, but you adopt that posture. Don't adopt that posture. Don't adopt that posture. Now, Jesus is not saying it's wrong to help with the speck. He's saying it's wrong to help with the speck but while pretending that you don't have um, anything in your own eye. How will you say to your brother, permit me to take out the speck from your eye and behold, the beam is in your eye. I added the exclamation mark, question mark thing. I think that's how, I think that's the, that's the tone. The, there are no punctuation marks in the original. Behold this beam. It's, it's absurd. I talked about this with y'all before. That um, the guy's looking around with a beam sticking out of his eye. Everybody has to duck as he's looking around because he's swinging this giant beam. Like I'm seeing, I'm seeing specks around here, and everybody's like, "What?" A... Have you ever known known someone that that projects their sin onto someone else? We've all seen this. You've all seen someone is projecting what they do on some on, onto someone else, and they don't see it in themselves, but they blame the other person for it. And that's pretty pretty gnarly, but it's really common. How will you say to your brother? Now, Jesus doesn't stop here, though. The instruction on judging doesn't end with the beam in your own eye. Because the thing is, these two buddies, they both need help. They both need somebody to address their eye. It's just one of them is not really qualified to help with the other. And this is another interesting thing, if you think about it. The guy with the speck, he's like, ah, oh, it's irritating. He could see better with, to help the guy with the beam. <laughs> but you've got two people that need something done for them. And, the, and it does absolutely no good to say, well, you're trying to help me, but you're self-righteous, so I'm not going to receive any help. Again, you're running off the cliff. They're like, hey, you're running off the cliff. You're being self-righteous. Like, how good, what good is that? But that's how we are. We fixate on the wrong thing. If I'm wrong and, and someone that's worse off than me tells me I'm wrong, I should listen because I'm wrong. See what I mean? But, but anyway, behold the beams in, in, in your own eye. In verse 5, you hypocrita, you hypocrites, you mask wearers, you people that have, have one presentation, but you're... Um, but you're, uh, you're, you, you have an outward presentation, but an inward difference. You hypocrites. All right. He says... Throw out, ekbala, throw out first the beam, the dakon, the dakos, in your, your own eye. And then you'll be able to diablepo. You'll be able to see clearly. It's an intensification on the word before for seeing. You see the speck in, in the other person's eye. You'll be able to see clearly to throw out in order to be able to throw out the, the beam from the eye of your, the speck from the eye of your brother. Okay. You'll be able to see to take out the speck from your brother's eye. It's interesting. Jesus didn't leave everybody with specks and beams at the end. Everybody got, got taken care of. The need was the, the irritants, the foreign bodies in the eye. If you just think about the illustration, he doesn't say, 
you just let all the specks just sit there. Everybody's walking around with specks in their eyes. He didn't say that. He said, first, take out the beam from your own eye so that you'll be able to see clearly to help the other. In other words, if you're not fit to help, get fit and then help, right? But don't wallow in your self-righteous arrogance of, of, of hypocritical judgmentalism, propping yourself up by only looking at the, the errors of others so that you don't look at your own errors. Don't be this self-righteous fool that is useless in the help. And it's so, I think it's so really important to get hold of this. God wants you to be useful to him. Brothers and sisters, you want to, you want to be able to say two things here. You want to be able to say, if I've got something that needs addressed, I want to be able to address it. And if somebody can help me, I want that. That's the first thing. If I need to make a change, I need to make the change. You need to be humble enough before God to make whatever changes that you need to make. And it's before him and it's for him. The other thing you need to be able to say is if there's a way I can help someone who needs to make changes to, to be what God wants them to be, I want to help. I want to be able to be helpful in that. And in both cases, I'm a servant of God. In both cases, I'm a broken person that God may use. In both cases, I just want to get it right. I'm humbling myself before him. So how do you come to somebody that needs to be come to, that needs to be talked to? How do you do it? There's a couple of thoughts. Hey, I'm just, you see this big, I just had a beam removed. I'm here to help, and I kind of can, but just understand I'm struggling. I'm not, a, I'm not a perfect person. Own that. Acknowledge that. And don't pay it lip service. Really live there. I'm not perfect and righteous and holy in myself, but Jesus is, and I have him, and he has me. This is how we come to somebody we want to help, is that we're all struggling. We all have things that we, we are dealing with, and, and we can help one another. Another thought is, before you speak to the person, speak to the Lord for the person. Tell God about it. Practice what you're going to say with your heavenly father and be honest. The problem with us is not that our prayer life is, um, is, is hypocritical. It's that it's not existent. If you're really talking to him, you're not lying to him. If you're really talking to him, you're telling him the, the concerns of your heart. You're working through things and you're processing in your prayers. And you need to talk to him about the person that you'd like to help before you go in for the help. And understand when you go to help someone, go willing to be helped. If you have something that you need to say and they need to hear, guess what? You may well have something that they need to say that you need to hear and you have to be willing and that's interpersonal. Yeah, but that would mean that, 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 that they're, they're on par with me. You mean a sinner saved by grace? Yeah. That would mean that, that I'm, not, I'm not in any way superior. Yeah. And embrace that. The one that is the most superior, the, one, the highest, the, the, the ultimate, put on a towel and became as a slave to serve us. He didn't assume a position to obey us, but he gave himself as a servant for us. That's our model. Of course, you don't hang on to your proper, well, I'd have to be, let that go. You have nothing to bring morally except Jesus as your savior. And let that be what it is. We, but we do have the word, and this does seem pretty clear. Be honest. You have to be vulnerable, in other words, Jesus says, in order to help people which in making judgments. And this would be all the difference. Remember, we started with it's in the heart. What you do is why. It's more important why. Do not give what is holy to the dogs. The kusin. Neither throw your pearls before the swine. Your margaritas, M-A-R-G-A-R-I-T-A-S. That's the plural 
accusative plural of margarita. And of course, everybody knows that that word is the Greek word for pearl. What did you think it was? Okay. Nor throw your pearls of you before the koiron, before the pigs. Lest those pigs trample them under feet and those dogs tear you to pieces. I think this is a classic Hebrew chiasm, Hebraistic chiasm, Jesus says. And it's another wisdom. He's just throwing wisdom statements at you throughout this whole thing. Don't judge lest you be judged. That means if you want to give, you're going to receive, right? Look at yourself before you look at someone else to help, but certainly you could help, but you've got to deal in the truth. And now, don't give the good thing. And, and right, off the, right after the, the judgment, have you ever thought about this fitting together with the judgment passage that he just said? What is holy is, hey, this is the wrong thing that you're doing, but you want to do the right thing. If the person's going to tear you to pieces for it because they're that kind of person, it doesn't help at all to throw that pearl to them. And so it's, there's a wisdom about being shrewd with who you're talking to. It's hard to suss that out. To, to, you know, people present themselves one way and then they show themselves another. We all kind of do that sometimes. But this is a, this is a thought that there is a waste of your resources, of the good thing. So don't give the good thing to somebody that is going to abuse it or abuse you for it. Temper that with uh, go the second mile too. But Jesus is saying, you may feel like you'd like to help this person, but you have thought it through and that person is a pig or a dog and they're going to, to hurt you for trying to help. No good deed goes unpunished is the proverb. And then we switch topics to asking. Ask and it will be given to you. In the Luke in context, where Luke it records these words from Jesus, Jesus said a lot of the same things a lot of times, I believe, in multiple itinerant preaching messages. But when Luke addresses it specifically, it's the offer of the Holy Spirit that God said he would give his Holy Spirit in the new covenant and ask that you could have this. He's telling the disciples. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in Matthew. It's more general. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. All metaphoric or I should say proverbial sounding language. Ask, seek, and knock. That's really encouraging. That's really encouraging. Did you know that there is nothing that you want there's nothing that you want that you need to have that God wants you to have that he doesn't want to give you. Did you know that? There's nothing that you need in God's account, accounting of need that he doesn't want you to have. But there's stuff I want that he won't give me. Yeah, see, that's that you and God thing. There's, that's something he doesn't want you to have, at least not now. But there's nothing you need that he doesn't want to give you. It's super encouraging. So stop pretending like God is uh, holding back the goods. Stop thinking with Satan that he's not really in it for your good, that he's holding back. Stop that. Stop that Genesis chapter 3, verse 5 um, misunderstanding of who God is, that, that diabolical implication that God is holding back, that your prayers are ineffectual, that it doesn't matter if you tell God. After all, you didn't get what you wanted anyway. You prayed for a Red Rider BB gun and didn't get it. That's not what it, it doesn't mean rub the genie and you get. It means that along the, the course of the good things that God wants to give you, you just keep talking to him along those lines. Let me give you some examples of things you can ask God for and he will give you. Ask him to grow spiritually. Make me more like your son. Let me know you through what you've said. 
Let me know what it means to really walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit and to have the fruit of the Spirit. Father, I want to be loving just like you told me to be. I want to experience what this self-sacrificial love really is. Teach me what it means to trust you and to know that I'm getting it right even though everything about me is falling apart. These things will be answered. I promise you they'll be answered because it's the revealed will of God in his word that that's what he wants for you. Or let me say it this way, the real eternally spiritually valuable things that God wants to give you, he'll give you. Ask him for them. Now, if you, if you want to ask for rat poison, he's not interested. He won't usually let you have any. And if he does, usually it's to teach you a lesson. And you don't want to do that. You want to have that kind of lesson. But a lot of our prayers are rat poison prayers. Let her be the one. Not the way. The God that you're dealing with really wants to deal with you, really wants you to ask him, really wants you to come after him. And he is asking for persistence. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks will find. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Direct parallelism to the other three. Ask, everyone who asks, seek, and you will find. Everyone who seeks will be fine. The one who knocks, it will be open. He who knocks. It's, it's like a doubling um, statement. And so Jesus says basically in verses 7 and 8 the, the same thing twice. Why does he double? Well, apparently he wants you to get this. Quit pretending like God isn't listening to you. Like God isn't interested in you because your situation is X, Y, or Z. Start going with what God tells you in his revelation. He is standing by to deal with you with all the riches and eternal inheritance that he's standing by to give you. So just embrace that and go with him. I didn't say you're going to get the thing that you said I want. But if you decide the step one, God is God. Step two, I'm not God. Step three, God wants better for me than I want for myself. So you say, God, have your way. If you'll go there in that basic Christian, baseline Christianity, God, you have your way. Then it'll be glorious. He'll, he'll get it and you'll get it. And that's what he's talking about. Or what man is there among you by illustration who if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. And if he asks for a fish, he'll not give him a snake, will he? No, he won't. If you, therefore, if therefore you, being evil, know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good, good things to those who ask him? Ooh, I'm evil? Does Jesus always think that? And every once in a while he actually slips and says it? Yeah, he knows what we are. He knows we're evil. <laughs> His disciples, he's talking to, if you're evil, oh, you mean I'm not as good as God? No, but you're supposed to be. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So this is a a readjustment of our thinking about our relationship to God, which we talked about first hour, the great stewardship of the relationship we have with God. This is a new way or better way to think about, in summary, what God wants for you. If you love your kids, is in other words, God loves you way more. He loves your kids more too. And so this is, this is revelation of who the Father is. Jesus is giving you baseline ideas about the goodness and love and desires of God. He wants the good, highest, and best for you. Well, how is X, how is this thing I'm dealing with, the good and the highest and the best? Well, if it's bad, if it's suffering, then it's bringing forth proven characters you trust him. And there's reward in heaven and eternity for that. Um, if it's 
if it's self-inflicted, then remember what we you know, start, go back to, to square one, it's self-inflicted. Why won't he take away this self-inflicted pain? Because you told him you wanted it and he's being a gentleman. And you could keep asking him to remove it and it may switch over to suffering for blessing. But the point is, this is your God in heaven who just, if you know the slightest bit of, of, of kindness to children, how we love, we all as our culture, we love the kids. There's some monsters in the culture that destroy the children, but for the most part, as a cultural thing, we love the kids. We scare them, and the elf on the shelf and all that. We love the kids. We provide for them. We, we, the whole thing on Christmas now about children having the fun thing, and parents love to see that. If you love to lavish your children with good things, then you have not seen anything when you think of who God is toward you. That's the way you're supposed to think of your father. And since that's the nature of the relationship, since that's how it is, since you're stabilized with a God who is looking to lavish his blessings on you forever and ever, therefore all things, whatever you want men to do, thus also do to them. See, the first 10 commandments, uh, are, the first four of the 10 commandments are how you treat God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Deuteronomy 6.5. The last six commandments are how you treat man. Love your neighbor as yourself. For God's sake. And so he switches from trusting your father and knowing he wants to give you good things and ask and seek and, and knock to dealing with people. It's really clear when you think of the context. Dealing with God and as he really is, the loving, doting father stabilizes you to deal with people so that you treat them like they would like to be treated or like, sorry, like, like you would like to be treated for God's sake. Now, what do you do with the golden rule? What therefore all things whatsoever you want men to do to you, thus also you do to them. You do to them what you want them to do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. This is love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is love your neighbor as yourself. It's called the golden rule. But now in context, it's the, it's the obedience factor to a God who is looking to lavish and bless us beyond what we can imagine forever and ever and ever. My cup runneth over, you know, I'm, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the nature of our relationship with God, even if we're suffering. So how does that fit with this? Well, this is how you would treat people for his sake. You would think what you would like, and then you would do that for them. You don't think, what did they do to me? And then I'm going to settle accounts and give them back what they gave to me. That's the opposite. You don't ask, what did I get? You ask, what I'd like to get. You need to think this one through. This is a very practical principle, but it's, it's pretty dense. Let's give an example. Let's say you like to bowl. You would like some custom bowling shoes because you're at that level where you would like to have your own bowling shoes. When the guy shows up with his own bowling shoes, I mean, that guy's a bowler. Your wife doesn't really like to bowl. You would like custom bowling shoes but she's not really a bowler. The way you apply this is not by having her some custom bowling shoes made because that's what you would like, so you did that for her. See, that's ridiculous. What you do is you think, I would like custom bowling shoes. What is she into? What is she like? What, is, what would be a special thing that would be like bowling shoes for me? What would that be like for her? And you find that thing and you do that for her. That's how you apply this in a silly, ridiculous illustration. This is so far removed from, well, they did this to me, so I'm doing this to them. That's, that's not how you think about people at all. In fact, you can't think about what you got to do this. You have to think about what you want. See, it's the opposite of how we do. Well, they did this, so I'm going to do this. 
they came this far, well, I'll come this far. That's, that's it. I mean, that's, that's fair. It's not talking about being fair. It's talking about being loving. What I'd like to happen for me is this good thing. So I'm going to provide. I'm going to bless. I'm going to be an agent of my father and lavish on the other like I'd like to receive. That's what the golden rule actually does. And so that's a totally different way of thinking about it. Do you want people to hit you? Then don't hit people. That's kindergarten morality. That's, that's elementary school morality. It's true. But this goes so much further, so much so far beyond um, not hurting people. Certainly, if you hadn't figured that out, by the way, back to what he started with, don't judge, you're going to be judged. Don't hit, you're going to be hit. Don't, don't, don't do things that are going to draw retaliation. But also, he doesn't say don't do the thing that you don't want done. He said what you want done for you, do for others. All right. You're a Christian. You're walking by the Spirit. You love God. The world around you thinks you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Your priority is making disciples. You're in God's word and you know that's what the people need, even though it's not what the people want. And so you're that person that the word of God is training you to be. Let's close on this illustration. There you are walking by the spirit after that pattern. Now, the person that you encounter wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with God's judgment, wants to just wallow in sin, wants to live as a profligate, as a sinful person, just fulfilling his or her lusts. What they want you to do is to leave them alone. That's what they want you to do. What you want to do is to haul them uh, off to the cross and help them trust in Jesus. What you want them to do. But if you think about it, what you'd like to happen for you is that you come to the Lord and grow in the word. That's what you'd like someone to do for you. And so this person that's has no clue that they're completely given over. They, don't know, they have no idea in their compassion that you need to have toward them. You would then apply this and say, what I'd like for me, if I were them, I would like for someone to show me the Lord and bring me to him. And so you have to think about that person given their stance, given their attitude, given their perspective. And you need to think about how you can be about what you would like to happen for you in that case, given the circumstances that they're in. So you have to think you have to think, and it's hard. It's much easier to say, well, to hell with them. They don't, they don't want the Lord. I don't want, they, want to, they want me to leave them alone. I'll leave them alone. And maybe to them, it looks like you're leaving them alone. You're giving them space. You're being polite. You're praying for them. At least you can talk to God about them. See what I mean? You're not disengaged from that, but you may not be personally, verbally engaging them for the moment. But you can talk to the Lord about them. You, you have to think, what would you like? Would you like to go to heaven or not? This is the way, one way you can apply this idea. As you do for the other person within what you can do, what you would like done for you. And so, it, like if you were opposed to Christ and Christians, think about that. If you were one of these people that thinks they're idiots, that thinks we're idiots and hates us and likes to scoff at us, would you like, if you were that person, would you like to be uh, shared a tract here. I, here's a tract for you. Would you like that that approach? You wouldn't. What would you like? I'd like to be left alone. Well, that's what they want. What else would you like? Well, ultimately, I'd like to not go to hell. So you have to you have to manage. What I'm saying is you have to manage the circumstance, and basically the the secret to it is getting yourself out of it. What I'd like to happen for me is that they come to the Lord. What I'd like to happen for them, therefore, is they come to the Lord. How can I be about that? 
And so you're not giving the person what he wants. You're giving the person what, what you would like for you. But it's the, on God's agenda, and it's not considering yourself what you get out of it. Matthew 7, 12 is a gold mine for how to think about dealing with people. It's a gold mine. Think. You've got to think to get this right. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. The closing moments here are devoted, uh, as always, to um, the Lord Jesus. What have you done with him? Have you considered him? The scriptures say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings and all your ways. Know him and he'll direct your paths. That's the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's also the gospel. Have you trusted in the Lord with all your heart? Have you trusted in Jesus as your savior? We've talked about sin and judgment. We have beaten up all kinds of categories of sin today and we've beaten ourselves up and called ourselves sinners because we are. No one here is saying they're the righteous person. We're saying Jesus the righteous has given us his righteousness. And the way we got it was not by earning it or deserving it. We trusted in him and he graciously lavished us with eternal life and his righteousness. And you can trust in Jesus as your savior right now. He is the righteous one who is calling you to himself through the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There is no greater or higher purpose in life than to know God the Father through Jesus Christ. There is no greater fulfillment of your potential. There's no greater meeting of your destiny than first figuring out what God has done in Christ Jesus on your account. That Jesus died in your place, paid for your sins, and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. Our Father, we thank you for this high calling, this wonderful truth, this richness that we have in Jesus, and the challenge of this familiar passage that is so powerful when we disregard ourselves and think what would you have us be about for someone else. We consider what we would like, how we would like to be treated, what we would ultimately desire. We disregard our own desires for ourselves and we seek to, to bless others. Father, strengthen us for it. Backfill us with resources to be about this work. We'll do it, Father, if you provide resources, as we've always said. And Father, those who don't know Jesus, we ask for the Holy Spirit to bring that reality of the gospel, that convicting message that the sinner needs a Savior, and that means every human being. Father, bless us as we go forth. Bless our families as we seek to, to walk by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.